name is Amanda Newland Davis, and I run Oklahoma Cold Cases along with my partner Jen. At Oklahoma Cold Cases, we try to shine light on the cases of the missing, murdered, and unidentified that otherwise don't get much media attention. For the last four years, we've existed solely on Facebook, sharing the posts of the missing, murdered, and unidentified of Oklahoma. But this past year, we've branched out and started a database in which we list all of the names of every cold case that is in Oklahoma that we are currently aware of. You can find us at oklahomacoldcases.org. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. You were a Girl Scout, right? Yes, third generation. I was never into the Girl Scout thing. I guess my mom was never into the Girl Scout thing. So what do you do as a Girl Scout? Everything. So I had every single patch that you could get. I was so about it. It was so fun. So basically what it does, it's almost like a women empowerment thing. We do very similar things that the Boy Scouts Mm -hmm. do. There is a patch for canoeing. There is a patch for um, roughing it, basically making your own food, starting a fire. There is a patch for first aid. There is a patch for just all kinds of, it's basically life skills. That's awesome. One of the coolest things, we had to, um, we did a lot of community service. We were taught how to recycle and how important it is. And so every household, we used to save all of our cans and we'd go dump them in my mother's driveway and we'd all stomp on them and then go get our money. And we would use that money for our arts and crafts time. And she taught us how to hand sew. She taught us how to do leather. She, as in your mom? We would have special people. Yes. My mother does leather. She's done leather since she was in high school. Purses, wallets, guitar straps. Hey. You know what? Actually, I think she made me a guitar strap once. There, There is a possibility. She would also have special people come in, like some of her friends. One of her friends knows sign language. And so she came in and taught us the alphabet and sign language. We all took a dance class. We learned hula, like how to hula and what it meant. At camp, we learned about how to salute the flag. So we we had flag. We had honor corps. We had a flag. And we would come out and raise the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance and all say a prayer together. And we would take the flag down every single day and fold it up. Like, I don't know. It was such an honor to be part of such a sisterhood like that, you know? That is really cool. It was super fun. We did everything. Half the softball team was in my Girl Scout troop. Your, was your mom your, your what do they call it? Your The troop leader. Troop leader. Her mother, my grandmother was her troop leader. And she, well, she and, I don't know if you remember Ken and Jan Hudson. Yeah. Uh, Jan just recently passed away. Uh, God rest her soul. Incredible woman. Great leader. Anyways, it kind of, I think mom had multiple ones, honestly, but Manny was involved in that and then mom was mine. Wow. 
That's cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, it was fun. It was it was a lot of fun. We were never bored. We'd go hiking. We'd go to Robber's Cave because that's right by where our Girl Scout camp was. Yeah. Uh, Wilburton at Robber's Cave. So we learned all about Jesse James and Bell Star and all those people that came through there and hid out while the feds were looking for them. And it was fun. That's really neat. I remember going to Robber's Cave once when I was a kid. Maybe maybe twice. It's a lot more fun when you're like in a troop like that because it's like all your friends and so you're really excited. I think we actually got patches there too because you get patches for like um, rock and tree recognition stuff like that you know yeah. so you go pick up a leaf and you're like this is an oak leaf this is a maple leaf this is a that 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 that's awesome and i was like allergic to cedar and pine so i'm like that over yonder is a pine tree i'm not going near it but I'll point. <laughs> that's a tree of death i see it yonder so yeah that is a lot of like little you're in, empowering these little women that's just awesome mm-hmm. it was, oh balancing checkbooks it, we learned all that, how to balance your checkbook, how to budget, what a budget was, awesome. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I blew that out of the water. She <laughs> introduced me to Pier 1 and ho, shit. So did you get to ask your mom about um, about Camp Scott? Um, I did, and she said that she went to Wilburton, and I quote... She said, I went to camp at Wilburton where you went, but when we went to, while me, we went with the girls who were in the troop that the girls were murdered. And I said, are you having a stroke? And she said, no, it's the stupid microphone. It doesn't like what I say. So basically, I think she's trying to say while she was at the camp at Wilburton, she was camping at Wilburton at the same time that the Camp Scott murders happened. Oh my gosh. You know what I mean? Yeah. What year was this? So this was 1977. Oh my God. My mom was 14. Yeah. My mom was 12 or 13 that yeah. year. And she actually, my mom lived in Mays County where this happened. Oh no. She thankfully wasn't in Girl Scouts at the time, but. Yeah, no kidding. She moved shortly after that, which I don't uh, blame anyone for moving their small female children out of that county. But, you know. No kidding. Especially, oh my God, it's just so scary to think about. Like, I basically haven't looked into this at all so that you can surprise me with information. It's terrifying to me because of all the things that I just told you. Imagine what a little family we were. Yeah. We were together accomplishing life things together, and there's nobody you'd rather be lost in the woods with. We learned what 2, 2 p.m. looked like according to the sun. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just can't imagine. They were my, they are still, we all call each other sister. They're my sisters. Yeah. I just can't, I can't imagine. It's like a little, it's like a little baby sorority. Yeah. That being said, I want you to prepare yourself then because okay this may be jarring to you a little bit but also remember okay. we were discussing like what we wanted to talk about next and I was like I don't know I want something with like kind of a, a creep factor maybe a little bit of supernatural factor and we kind of get that with this case we get all the things oh really so this has a lot to do with Native American spiritualism. Oh, I just absolutely, I believe and I respect and I just have so, so, so much respect for 
tribal stuff. And when I was like going through this, I was like, uh, I, I watched some documentaries because I'm trying to pull information from, from every source that I can. And they actually have a lot of the things that I'm going to tell you that pertains to is from a Native American OSBI agent that they actually pulled in on the case because it dealt so heavily with the Native Americans in the area. And so a lot of it is like straight from his mouth in this documentary you can watch that I think it was called Someone Cry for the Children. There's a TV show? A documentary? Yes, but no. It was aired live, I believe, on television. What the hell is that? What? In the late 1990s or the early 2000s. I want to say it was the late 1990s. But, you know, back then they didn't like really save things or, you know, whatever. So it's kind of weird to get a hold of nowadays. What the hell, man? I found it on YouTube and you can find it on YouTube. But the, the only problem with the one on YouTube is that it does that weird thing where it, it they put it in this little corner in the bottom of your TV because they're not really supposed to have it. <laughs> you know? Oh. oh. <laughs> Someone pirated it. Yeah. So if you're okay watching it that way, like I did, because I just wanted the information, then, I mean, right. you, can, you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. How long is it? It's an hour and a half. Okay. I can do that. It's called Someone Cry for the Children. It's uh, narrated by Johnny Cash. <gasps> no shit? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh. And uh, basically, there was a book written not long after the... Girl Scout murders called someone cry for the children. So it's based on the book. And what they did was they kind of had Johnny Cash narrate it. And then he reads some of the paragraphs and stuff from the book itself. And then they go and they actually do like interviews and stuff like that. So, oh my gosh, how have I never heard of this? Between Girl Scouts and Oklahoma and Native Americans and Johnny Cash, like I just. Yeah, how have you never heard of it? <laughs> Probably had me outside learning how to make an oven out of a cardboard box for a for a fucking patch for my <laughs> for my sesh. <laughs> you don't need to watch this, honey. Why don't you go learn how to kill a deer? Probably, yeah. That. So I I took notes while I was watching the documentary, but I also pulled over a bunch of information and kind of slew them together from a bunch of different news articles. And we're talking like. This one made the New York Times, so... Ugh, this just gets more and more frustrating that I don't know anything about this. What the, the hell? The whole trial was actually followed by the New York Times. We are going to start with, do you even know where Camp Scott is? <laughs> Negative! It's one of those W towns, though, right? Do you know... Wetumpka, Wilika? Actually, it's Locust Grove. Oh, so close. Where the hell's that? Locust Grove is in Mayus County. It's about 50 miles away from where I am currently, Tulsa, Oklahoma. It basically, if okay. you just head east and keep going for literally 51 point something miles, you'll run smack into it. The camp itself, Camp Scott, is about a mile south of Locust Grove. Okay. So we're towards Arkansas? Yes. Yeah, we're, we're getting over okay. there. I'm picturing it. Because that's like a wooded area. Like It's a very wooded area. It's, it's hilly and trees because you're up there by the corner where like Missouri is and Arkansas, which is like one of the most beautiful states, by the way. So yeah, hilly tree. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. I picture it. Each camp 
within the greater camp of Camp Scott um, was named after a Native American tribe. So you've got like Apache, Choctaw, Chickasaw, stuff like that. It was started or it had been in operation since 1928, I believe. So the tents themselves, it's kind of like up on these um, like posts or whatever. And then you have like a literal tent over it. But then you have up to four cots in each one. And four, up to four girls could stay in each one. And an adult? Were they just by themselves? I guess we'll get to that part. No, yeah, that's you. You're asking the right questions because, yes, one to two, sometimes maybe a little more camp counselors in this, not a tent, but a cabin. And it was like this with, with every camp on the grounds. This is set up so weird. I'm just, what the hell? And you are correct. Oh, so strange. This was back in like the Woodstock days, so that's whatever, but... Yeah, this is 77. About 30 counselors in all, and you see how many camps are there, so imagine 30 being scattered between camps. Oh, yeah. So what happened is they would, I believe, this at this time during this, there were up to 130 campers already, and there were supposed to be more arriving the next day. You go down Cookie Road named after their Girl Scout cookies, to get to Camp Scott. The camp that that this happened in was the uh, Kiowa camp. And it's just kind of out there on its own. I mean, really, it looks more isolated than the other ones. It It is more isolated, and it says victim's tent. They were in tent number eight, and it was actually the most isolated tent so you're in the most isolated camp in the most isolated tent. Okay. God. So they get there that morning. They're doing their their normal Girl Scout things. They're, they're going to be there for two weeks. So there's going to be a lot of patches to get. They're going to be... They're all broken up in groups. Usually what it is is each one of the four tent... Or there's a tent with four girls in it. And that is one troop. So if you're looking and you see five or six tents, they're usually all different troops, unless the troop is just a really large troop. The girls that were in tent eight that night were their own troop. And they were missing one girl who was supposed to arrive the next day. So they're doing their cute little Girl Scout stuff. They're getting ready. They're they're playing. They're having a good time. One of the counselors brings a new girl from a different troop over before dinner and says, you know, this girl, her troop has too many people in her troop. She can't stay with her troop in a tent. So we're going to put her with your troop. And the girls just immediately click. They're having a good time. They're getting to know each other. She's super excited. Someone from her troop comes over to check on her. She basically says, no, I'm good. She's like 10 or 11 years old. All of these kids are eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. Mm. She says, I'm good. I just made new friends. I'm having a fantastic time. We're gonna, we're doing cool stuff. We're hanging out together. They go and they eat dinner together. At one point, they're playing around with each other. There was a girl in the tent next to them that kept making hand puppets on the outside of the tent, trying to scare the girls. And they'd have a big scream and then giggle fest and 
one of the girls had to go to the bathroom. And so, you know, when they have to go to the bathroom, they have to have a camp counselor come down and take them to the bathroom. This is where things start to get eerie. It's getting dark. This is, I can't believe that, remember if this is right before dinner or right after dinner. I think this was right after dinner from what I, I read. So this new girl whose name was Sweet, her last name was Sweet, who has joined Lori Farmer, cute little blonde girl. She was eight years old and her birthday was in five days. Oh. Denise Milner and Michelle Gus. I think I'm saying her name right, but I'm not sure. That was their little new clique. And they're all heading off to the latrine with the camp counselor. It's getting dark. They're walking down through this path to go to the latrine. And in the distance, in the trees, and almost every single interview I have seen about that night, people say, you know, back it was the 70s, number one. They did not have any lighting there. You basically just had flashlights and campfires. Right. We didn't we didn't either. Yeah. The only lights we had were at like the main the main mess hall where yes. we ate, where the flag was. Everything else we were out in the woods. Yes, exactly. The cabins barely had it. <laughs> yeah. So the counselor is leading them on with her flashlight and the girls are in tow. And up in the trees ahead they see a couple flashlights kind of bobbing in the trees in and out. They can't really make out who it is or whatever, but according to Miss Sweet, girls being girls, they, oh my goodness, and then kind of screamed and then had giggles and whatnot. But when they screamed, those flashlights immediately turned off and vanished. Oh, sketchy. No, 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 no. Now, I do not know, because this is straight from an interview with this girl, so I don't know if whatever camp counselor was with them saw that or not, or all she heard was some little girl screaming and turned around and went, what is the big deal? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if she witnessed that or if it was just the girls who witnessed that, but it only gets weirder from there. What if it wasn't flashlights? Like, remember Coloma? I don't know. Anyways... You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know. I, I, yes, I know where, what you're getting at here. <laughs> okay. Okay. Maybe. Welcome to the spirit world. Because I'm about to tell you some crazy stuff. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh my God. I feel creeped out. I feel like I need to open the door in this office. Last night, I felt so weird just simply watching the documentary that I lit um, sage and sweetgrass last night. And I was like, nope spirits get out nope <laughs> you you really you really need to pay attention to what you're doing and what you're looking at first of all yesterday was 11 11 mercury passed over the sun it's in retrograde tonight's a full moon oh yeah i know and this is the night we pick to do this weird one <laughs> this supernaturally weird one my pillows are haunted now i don't even <laughs> oh my god you just watched this last night how fresh yeah i did so they're walking and they saw lights and the girls screamed and then the lady looked and there's no lights lights are gone they go to the latrine and they lead them back to the tent and they're The counselor tells them, okay, you know, we need to start settling in for the night. We're not going to be doing anything else because there's a storm rolling in and it's supposed to be raining really hard. It's probably going to thunder. Don't be scared, but we just want you to know, like, we're not going to be doing anything out of the tent for the rest of the night. So 
you guys just get in here, hunker down, make yourselves comfortable. She suggested that they go ahead and write their first letter home. And so all the girls got their little pens and paper out and they all actually wrote their families letters home that they would later get after. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I have a couple of those on hand. Oh, you were <sighs> just a little bit. I know I'm, I'm here to torture you tonight. And their eight year old handwriting that just looks like ransom note. Uh, yeah. Oh, how precious. I saw pictures of their little notes too. And they're pretty stinking cute. Oh my God. One says, we're just getting ready to go to bed. It is 7.45. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's nothing else to do. This isn't exactly what I'd rather be doing, but here we are. (laughs) Another one writes, Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I am fine. I am writing from camp. We can't go outside because it is storming. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is shades of purple. Love, Michelle. Oh my god. The other one, poor little Lori, this was her very first year of ever going to Girl Scouts anything and being on her own. I mean, she's eight years old. She's going to have a birthday in five days. She's going to be spending her birthday away from her parents for the first time ever. She wasn't super comfortable with it in the first place. And her parents actually kind of insisted that she go. Hers says, I don't like camp. It is awful. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. And of course it goes on. But she did not want to be there. The girls and this fourth little girl was there. Well, apparently the counselor came in at that time and took the fourth little girl and said, somebody from your troop didn't show up so you get to stay with your troop now and she's kind of like oh man well I just made like new friends and so she actually takes her back to her troop and her camp she would have essentially been there that night if it hadn't been for whatever other little girl didn't show up so it's storming and the girls are trying to settle in I don't know why but thunder and lightning and stuff makes me uneasy I can't imagine being an eight-year-old girl alone, no counselors, no adults present, no parents present in the middle of the woods. Like, I don't know. I'd have been creeped out anyway. I know. And there's so much, there's so much about storms. that's like lightning can light things up. That's wonderful. But it blinds you for a second. If you've seen it, it's just like a flashlight when you, it never freaking fails. Someone turns on a flashlight or a camera, you know, it goes off and you look at it and you're blinded for a second. So you have that blinding effect because it goes back to pitch black night. You have the thunder that masks sounds. So you can't hear branches crunching, leaves crunching, rocks, you know, someone walking near you. And then the other thing is it effing washes everything away. Oh, yeah. Like evidence, blood, what the hell ever. So sometimes storms can be creepy if you're eight years old in a tent in the woods without an adult. God, all that's just awful. So it's uh, about nine o'clock at this point. They're, you know, settling down for the night. Pan to the rest of the entire camp. Okay. So from about this point forward, there are witnesses literally all over the camp saying that they keep hearing things outside of their tents. 
that sometimes they would hear what sounded like crunching or sticks cracking or something like that. They would look outside, nothing would be there. There were these strange guttural grunts and stuff coming from the woods. Several people said that they saw some black stray dog that they would, that would just, it looked like it was just watching them. And then when they would try to like go towards it or call it or whatever, it would just run off and just completely disappear. There were people that witnessed these floating lights in the trees. See? Ugh. Told you. I, I mean, I technically didn't tell you because you know all this. <laughs> oh my God. I knew it. Freaking knew it. Okay. 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 So they're assuming that these lights that they're seeing are flashlights out in the woods. But the strange thing is, is that they would see them for a little bit and then they would completely turn off and there would be no movement in the woods. And then they would pop up in a different location. I honestly don't know why. I mean, I can understand if these little girls are the ones that are that's seeing this stuff, but this was also reported by camp counselors. I'm not sure why they didn't investigate it. And speaking of, there was one counselor that did investigate it. She was actually 15, I believe, at the time. And this was her... Oh, God. Yeah, this was her first year that she was not in an actual troop, but was there helping as a counselor. And around midnight, she started hearing guttural noises and stuff outside of her tent. So she came out of the tent with her flashlight and she literally patrolled her camp area and didn't find anything out of the ordinary other than floating, looked like flashlights in the trees. She said that she would lift her flashlight up to that spot. Whatever lights were out there would just completely go dark. There would be no movement. She couldn't see anything out there, even with her flashlight. And then so she would take it back down and start patrolling again. And these lights would pop up in a different location. <laughs> she said she did that a couple of times before she finally was patrolling and nothing was happening. Well, while this is happening on the other side of the camp... There's things disappearing from people's tents and cabins. Things? Yes, like personal effects. There was a mirror taken. And and at this time, people are thinking, okay, well, maybe I just left this thing at home right. or whatever. Like, they're not really thinking too much of it. But then they start hearing, um, you know, the ties that hold down the sides of a tent? Yeah. So those start getting loosened and start flapping around in the in the wind and stuff like while this thunderstorm is happening all of a sudden the, a tie would get loosened and it would just start flapping uh, maybe not not to sound like a braggart but these are freaking girl scouts we learn nautical knots those things aren't just coming loose i'm telling you that's yes and that's my point is that like these are things like someone is deliberately messing with with this camp this entire yeah, camp. Yeah, the storm is not gonna... Yeah. No, and it's not just the Kiowa camp. This is happening all over Camp Scott. One counselor also reported a pair of her prescription glasses missing. Oh, ugh. I'm a glasses wearer. 
I'm not just going to lose those. I'm not just going to forget to bring them. Like if I need them to see all the time, I'm telling you right now, I, I'm going to know if I forgot. Yeah, but not. glasses are the perfect freaking thing to take because even if you wear contacts, these are little kids, so they probably don't. But say you wear contacts during the daytime, you're diligent about it as you're supposed to be and you take them out and then you wear your glasses at night. If you don't have your glasses, I can't identify this man. I don't know where I went. I don't know where I'm going. Exactly. God, that's disgusting. So there are things, really strange things happening around the camp all night. Ugh. Yes, I know. These poor babies. This 15-year-old camp counselor went in and checked on all the girls individually. And in each of her t- their tents, there were eight total. She checked on every single one of them. She even says, and she was talking about the little girls that would get murdered that night. She said, these are the three of the quietest kids. And even their tent was just as loud and lively as many of the other tents. I mean, they're just kids having fun, having a good time. Unbeknownst to them, there are these weird, creepy, strange things going on right outside their tent. Just right outside the doors. There was, that was about midnight. So she goes back to her cabin. She's kind of hunkering in for the night. Like an hour later, a girl in tent number six reported that someone flung open the tent door and shined in a flashlight, kind of like shined it in all of the girls' eyes, shut the tent, and the flashlight went out, and they had no idea who it was, but this little girl claimed that it looked like a man. Oh, what the what? Yes. She's just a small child. She doesn't know that he's not supposed to be there so she doesn't do anything. She doesn't tell anybody. They, they just, you know, go roll over and, and go to sleep. And when you're a child in that environment, you're tr- like any an adult, you're trusting an adult. You're just trusting adults at that age. You're so that's one thing that's so freaking disgusting about it is they're so young and so naive and so innocent. And these people are the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. How you're preying on bunnies like you're just. That was, oh, one, two in the morning. These strange things keep happening until around 3 a.m. And around 3 a.m., a camper at the Cherokee camp. So Comanche was south of them and then Cherokee was south of that. So just remember how far away that is when I tell you this. Okay. A camper at the Cherokee camp hears screaming. And at the same time, a camper from an adjacent camp hears screaming and cries and a girl yelling out mama several times over and over again. These are campers that remember hearing this. To me, that says these were other girls that remember hearing this. So they didn't report anything happening. I think I remember in one of the interviews, someone said that they didn't think anything about it because they thought that it was probably just Lori who was in tent number eight but knew that she didn't want to be there. She wasn't having a good time. And she also had really bad nightmares. They just assumed that it was Lori having a nightmare. Yeah. Or like girls scaring each other or screaming or when there's 130 girls around each other, someone's going to scream. Yeah. I probably wouldn't think anything about it either. Honestly, it wasn't until about 6 a.m. the next morning 
that same 15-year-old camp counselor decides that she wants to wake up early to get to the showers early because there's a lot of other people there and she wants to get some warm water, some hot water before everybody gets showers. So she's heading to the showers and she looks over to the trail that leads into their camp and notices like this lump of it looked to her like clothing or like baggage or something she actually described it as she said i thought that some of our baggage hadn't been delivered yet and that maybe they had came and delivered it and just left it there because they didn't know where it went and didn't want to wake anyone what the hell so she went over to check it out so there were three little girls in this tent Lori, a little blonde girl Denise Milner, who was a little black girl, and Michelle, who was a little dark-headed girl. When she got over to this lump of things, she realized that it was child sleeping bags. There was also a flashlight, rope, and some duct tape laying in this big pile. What the fuck? She got a little closer and realized that someone had kind of laid one of the sleeping bags over Denise. And she was dead. She was naked from the waist down. She had been beaten to death. She had been hit so many times in the head and the face that there were actually indentions from the murder weapon in her face. As if that wasn't enough, she was strangled. And the cause of death was determined to be strangulation. Oh, good. So you did all that and then strangled her. And remember... The, this girl who discovered this is 15 years old. Right. Like, she can't even drive yet. Police get there. She takes them over to this area. They see her body, and they... So, they open up the sleeping bags, both of them, and haphazardly shoved inside, both in fetal position, are these other two little girls, each in their own individual bag. Down at the foot of them are bloody towels and bloody sheets and stuff. When they go into the tent, it looks like someone tried to wipe up blood from the floor with these things. But it was like to no avail and they just shoved it in the bottom of these bags and then put them in there with it. What in the world? Why? all three of them and then you're gonna drag them out of the tent and you're gonna kill them i don't know how the other two died yet but then stuff them in their sleeping bags and leave them just out there like what is wrong with you yeah why in the world would you do this next to the bodies there was a red flashlight found it was determined that that little girl was not sexually assaulted the Uh, Other two girls were, however, sexually assaulted. There was semen and sperm found on them. One of them was also sodomized. So they don't really know what with, and they never found a murder weapon. God bless. And the way that the other two girls died was they were beat to death. They were bludgeoned, one in the back of the head, and the other on the side of the head. So they determined that Lori, the one that was hit in the back of the head, may have been hit first and killed instantly. And maybe that was the reason why she was not beaten as badly or not raped or sodomized. But the other two were. They were pretty bad. And actually, 
both of those two girls were bound as well. The one that they found without anything from the waist down, her bindings, her hands were tied behind her back. And it was all done with nylon rope and duct tape. Why would you do this to children? What could they possibly... Why would you need to beat them to death, first of all? Why would you need to tie them up in any way, second of all? You know, what are they going to do, honestly? Punch you in the kneecap? Like, all of this. Your last moments of life at that age shouldn't... That's not right. It's so not right. So they went and and checked out the tent. In the tent, they found that some of the towels were missing, which is how they determined that there was a bloody footprint. The blood was still wet in the tent itself, and they sized that to be a nine and a half. Small-footed piece of shit. So they they shut the camp down, and remember, this is the start of day two. They're supposed to be here for two weeks. Oh my god. They tell all of the camp counselors, basically, make something up so that you can get these girls to the buses without scaring them, basically. Right. Yeah. And so all the camp counselors came together and told everybody, okay, there's something wrong with the water. It's dangerous. So we're going to have to shut down. We're going to have to have people come out here and check the water and all this whatnot. So we're just going to make a single file line towards the buses. And they start sending them out bus by bus. By this time, because most of them are being bussed in from Tulsa, there are parents waiting at this pickup spot in Tulsa that are already hearing the news on the radio. And no one has informed any parents yet. Oh my god. So they're like, I don't know if my kid's getting off this bus or not. Exactly. Oh my god. The little girl who was moved into their tent that night, but then moved out of that tent, when her parents dropped her off, they actually told her mom she was going to be in that tent. And they never updated her when they moved her. Jesus. So here she is, knowing that her daughter is staying in that tent, and she is flipping out. And the little girl, well, she's not a little girl now. She did an interview for the 40th anniversary. And she told, I believe it was some news station here, that when she was on the bus and the counselors kept telling all the kids, when we call your name... You need to stand up immediately. Come to the front and we'll, we'll walk you to your parents. Well, when they called her name, she, I guess, was doing something, doodling or dropped something or something, and she didn't hear them say her name. And when she finally did, she said, I guess they had said my name a couple times. And when I stood up, she said, I looked out the window and my mom just was falling to her knees and was absolutely sobbing because she didn't think I was coming back. So I stayed there for a little while and watched her out the window. She was thankfully reunited with her parents, but that was like absolute happenstance. There was supposed to be a fourth girl from that troop there that night who didn't make it. That had called and they said, oh, we'll be there in the morning. So that little girl was somehow saved by not doing that. And then this little girl was somehow miraculously moved back out of this tent it's just very strange welcome to the universe there's so much more to this than i would have imagined it's there's like a little bit of everything so the bodies of denise milner who was 10 Lori farmer who was eight 
I keep thinking about her birthday being in five days. I don't know why. I just can't stop thinking about that. And then Michelle, who was nine. It reminds me of Ron Williamson, who was five days away from being executed when he was exonerated with DNA evidence. Maybe that's the significance that I'm connecting. Five days. Five days could make it or break it. How crazy is that? Yep. Five days from leveling up. That's just so crazy. Anyway, I, I get it too. Like I I completely understand. It could be six and it wouldn't quite stand out to us. Yeah. I, it's just really weird. Anyway. Okay. So the parents heard this news in many different ways and not everybody was informed by the police like you would imagine. They show up on your doorstep and knock on your door. No, no, no. One mother said she was about, she said she was at the beauty shop. She says they were about to blow dry my hair and I rushed to the phone and called my husband because she had heard it on a news report over the radio in the beauty shop. I would almost rather, if I had to learn, I would rather learn that way because. Because it's lower impact than the cops showing up at your door. Well, yeah, but it's also like, I mean, that's one memory that you remember, but it's like. I remember exactly who called me to tell me on December 2nd, almost like almost a year ago, like I was saying, like, I remember who called me. I remember where I was, got that phone call and I will never forget who it was. And that person, it's still kind of, it hurts my heart just to see their name sometimes, you know? Oh yeah. It, low impact you, perfect verbiage. Yeah. Because I get that. There's a haunting behind that. What came next was basically, I believe they had like a 150 man search party that was initially put into place. They just went out into the woods and started looking for anyone who was straggling about that wasn't supposed to be there. While they were doing this, because apparently Locust Grove is a pretty tight knit community and it is a Cherokee community as well. And they had sent OSBI officers into town to kind of sniff around. And they started hearing rumors about there being a Cherokee man that knew the land really well out there who had actually grown up a mile from Camp Scott and like knew the land and that he was possibly staying somewhere near Camp Scott. But no one would say who it was. Mm -hmm. What they did was the OSBI called in Agent Pratt, which was, I, I don't think that he was Cherokee himself. I forget which tribe he was from, but he was Native American. And he brought in one of his other, he called brothers, Native American brothers, to basically go undercover and talk to the Cherokee people to see if he could come up with anything. He got wind that there was a medicine man staying somewhere out on the property. He hears this and kind of asks them, so is, is this man that you're mentioning, is this man under the protection of a medicine man? Is that what you're telling me? And they said, yes, but we're not going to give him up. You're going to have to find him because a, a lot of people are related and a lot of people are friends and, you know, small towns. And so Agent Pratt decides, well, he's got a medicine man. I want a medicine man. I need a medicine man. I need to combat his medicine man with my medicine man. Oh, my God. So he brings in 
his own medicine man. And he brings him down to Camp Scott and they're going to do a cleansing ritual. And he also wants to basically be blessed in tracking so that he can track down who did this because he felt like just like in his gut that this person was still nearby. So he brings in his medicine man. They do a ritual and how he describes the ritual. He says, basically these rituals are pretty sacred. So he didn't want to give all the details of this ritual, but basically it entails what used to the ancient ritual was that they would burn cedar branches and they would ask certain things. You know, I would like to find the person who did this. Please bless me in finding this person. Yeah, they have spirit guides. Yeah. And then in the old days, they would pass the peace pipe. Well, they don't, they haven't done that in a while. Mm-hmm. He said what they would do in 1977, at least, is they would have a pack of cigarettes. And what they would do is they would take a cigarette out. They would break off the filter and then they would pass the unfiltered cigarette instead. He's describing this ritual. His medicine man blesses him, blesses some of his um, service weapon bullets. And oh, wow. Yeah. And a lot of other things gives him basically the ability to track his target. And as the medicine man put it, you will never lose your target is what he told him. Wow. And he said he actually, it was just him and his brother, what, how he said it. And there were other OSBI agents who just kind of like you and me, like I was watching this documentary. I have to light up some sweet grass and sage right now. These OSBI, other OSBI agents kind of felt the same way. And they asked him, hey, can we just like kind of get in on this and <laughs> cleanse our souls or whatever? Because <laughs> there is some crazy shit happening around here and we just need to kind of be blessed as well (laughs) and so they were like oh yeah and so i think he said it was like six or seven other agents that got blessed by the medicine man as well but so while they're doing that they're bringing in search dogs the search dogs get there they've wrapped up their ritual and they're raring to go they're ready to get out they're ready to start tracking but here's the weird part They would send the search dogs out. They would let them, you know, smell these pieces of clothing and all this other stuff that they would let them get the scent of. And these dogs would freaking take off and they would be on it. And then they would like run into the middle of a clearing and look straight up in the air and just sit down. What the? And they're going, uh, what's up with your dogs, man? Because two of these dogs... However many dogs that they brought in had actually been dubbed wonder dogs or something like that because they were like champion whatever had done this many times and were the best of the best. And they're like, what is wrong with your dogs? They did this for like days and days. And these dogs would get on this trail and then they would just lose it. They would just sit down like, okay, well, this is where it ends or whatever. But it wouldn't make any sense because if they're tracking a person, there was nowhere for that person to go. Mm. So this OSBI agent decides he needs to go back into town and he needs to speak with the townspeople a little more. So he goes back in and he's asking around. 
these townspeople are saying, we've heard the medicine man has told us that the person that you're looking for is a shapeshifter. Oh my God. Do they know anything about the dog business? The girls seeing the dogs in the woods? That's one of the things that still remains to this day. There are people that sneak onto the property and say that they still see that black dog out there. It'll just disappear. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. But this OSBI agent, he's going, if that's true, that would make sense on why the dogs would just stop and look into the air because he's seeing, you know, if this is a shapeshifter, he's running and shifting into a bird or something and flying away or just being super elusive. So he's like, I have to step up my game. Get my medicine man back. The medicine man comes back. Basically, he says, try to rely on the gifts that I've given you the first time. Try to use them appropriately. He said, I told you that you would never lose your target. So he says, okay, well, I'm going to go give it one more try then. So he gets out there and starts tracking again. Eventually, he gets to a cave. In this cave, he finds several really small campfires all together, four of them, kind of almost in a half moon. He also finds cedar branches, newspapers, cigarettes with the filter torn off, and two photos of two women. I'm just creeped out over here. They go back and they start looking over the evidence that they found at the crime scene. They start looking over this flashlight that they've found. They find a thumbprint on the glass of the flashlight. It was like kind of a crappy flashlight. And inside there was a folded up piece of paper that was fitted between the springs and the battery. Right. I was going to say it's pretty freaking brilliant to take apart. Like if you find a gun to take the gun apart because or the flashlight, whatever. If that person has had that item for very long, their fingerprints are all on the inside. And I probably shouldn't be talking about this because now if the wrong person hears this, they'll think to wipe down everything. In the heat of the moment, if something's happening and you shoot somebody, you have physically loaded every round into that gun with your finger. Oh, yeah. That paper thing was a super common thing. My grandfather used to do it to keep his batteries from dying. He'd leave the batteries in there, but then it would just be like when you just get a brand new watch and you have to pull the little tab to activate the crown. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a very familiar thing. They did sweep for fingerprints inside of it, but they pulled out that piece of paper, which there were no fingerprints inside of it, only on the end on the glass. Not even on the batteries? Not even on the batteries. Oh, that's so dissatisfying. I know. But they did pull out that piece of paper and unfold it, and it happened to match the paper that they found in the cave. So what it was, it was actually torn off of, like, a physical newspaper. Right. It was the Tulsa World's newspaper. It was pulled off of there, and at the top, where he had pulled it down, it like said the addition number on it and then he folded up and put it between the battery okay well when they found the paper in the cave it was missing that exact piece and it was the same exact addition so they immediately connected the two the cave and the crime scene 
the reason why they thought that they were looking for a Native American in this was because of the small campfires, because they had their OSBI agent was there. He was looking at it. He said, this is what we usually do for certain sorts of rituals. We have four small campfires because four is a significant number in Native American lore. Oh my God. And then also they found the branches, the same branches that he used, that the medicine man used earlier to help bless him. And then they found the cigarettes with the filter pulled off. They determined that there was a Native American man in that cave doing some sort of ritual. So obviously the paper was from before the murders. It just said that it was a Tulsa World physical newspaper is all it said. And and the addition on the part that was pulled off matched the addition that they found in the cave. Right. And that the that flashlight is from the girls' camp sleeping bags. Actually, the one that was found in between Lori's legs was theirs. The other one, they determined that someone left there because it wasn't any of the girls that had been left next to the bodies. Okay. It matched just all that they wanted so that they could connect the two places together. Okay. They determined that they are looking for a Native American. They still have these two pictures of these two women. So they take these pictures in and they're trying to figure out who these women were. Remember, everything is super old school because it's 1977. They got to do like everything by hand. They got to ask people all of these old school investigation things. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> my friend that's the detective was talking about how he used to have to carry quarters with him so he could use a payphone to call Central Dispatch. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm not I'm not laughing at you, friend. I'm just really not sure if you're serious or not. I bet he is. I'll bet you a million dollars. I bet he is too. Anyway. <laughs> They're passing these pictures around trying to figure out where they came from. They were actual photos they weren't like cut from a magazine or whatever they were actually actual photos so they know this photographer and this photographer that they pull in who actually worked at a prison as a guard and then would like moonlight and he had actually taken those pictures himself of the women who were the women i never saw any names are you shitting me yeah i never saw any names and and even when you see pictures of the photos like crime scene photos all the faces in those pictures are blurred out so i guess they didn't want to be named or whatever but wait how did this guy get a hold of him how'd the guy in the cave get a hold of him i'm glad you asked I'm over here lighting candles and incense like a motherfucker this i swear this story gets fucking weirds <laughs> me out I picture this. Like, this is something very alive in my head. If that was my same camp, it might be too much for me. Yeah. Especially the cave thing. Like I told you, we hiked at Robber's Cave. We went in the caves and there was a cave nearby. Like, the whole shit is just... Yeah. I mean, you're creeped out. I'm only like an hour away from this shit right now. (laughs) I'm creeped out, but I'm living in the past. I very much remember these memories. Okay. They were a crucial part of the person I became. So I'm picturing, I know the smell. I know the granddaddy long legs when you first get to camp and how you have to get rid of them. And you're supposed to treat everything with respect so you can't kill them. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, I just, it's just everything. Like, it's, it's the first day. You're just getting to know people. You're having to adjust to getting up at a certain time because it is like military camp. Oh, yeah. You all eat together. 
there's people who wash dishes. There's people who wash the bathrooms, like a troop. You're taught responsibility while you're there. And then it's just fucking snatched away. I wanted to know how the guy in the cave got a hold of the pictures. Why were they connected to the guy in the cave? How did he get them? So this this moonlighting photographer, who was a guard, said, Hey, I took those pictures, but I can tell you exactly who developed those pictures. They were developed in the prison by an inmate. This was his job. What the? This just gets creepier. Mm-hmm. That inmate happened to be a man named Gene Leroy Hart. He was a 33-year-old Cherokee man. Oh, God. Who was in prison for rape, kidnapping, and four counts of burglary. Four is that magic number, isn't it? Sure is. He was serving time for those that he had accumulated 305 years for. Holy. Oh, yeah. And, well, he had actually left the two girls that he kidnapped and raped. He had um, left them to die. Let's just talk about that for a minute. When he did this, he kidnapped them, get this, bound their hands with nylon rope, put duct tape over their mouths, and then raped them off and on for several hours when he was, he would put one in the back of his trunk and then drive and the other one in the back of his seat of the car. And then he would pull over and rape her and then switch them out. Good God. When he was like done with them, he took them out into the middle of, I believe the woods and just like left them there to die. Like fully intending that they would not return because he moved the duct tape over their mouth and their nose and he had bound them so they couldn't breathe and he was going to let them just suffocate. Well, one of the girls happened to get free and then broke the other girl free and they lived and they testified against him. By God. Here's the thing, though, that kind of makes me mad. And this is something that I actually wanted to talk about just informational wise and I'm going to be real quick about it if I can. For the kidnapping and the rape... He got, there were two of them, and he got two counts. He was convicted and sentenced for two counts, 10 years each. Leaving someone for dead doesn't count as some kind of attempted murder? Apparently not. Are you shitting me? Yeah. So he got 10 years for one girl, 10 years for the other, to be served concurrently. Now, for the burglary, the four burglaries, one of which he tries to burglarize a policewoman's home, and she is the one that initially captured him. <laughs> what an idiot. Yeah. And that came the rest of the sentence, and it was almost like 300 years consecutively. Now, this is what I wanted to talk about. Number one, why the hell is taking someone's things, he didn't even have a weapon when he did this. He just stole, he, he broke into people's houses and stole their wallets and their purses. Why does that give you more time than raping and almost killing two women? The police officer thing, they might have just thrown the book at him because it's just like assaulting a police officer. That is true. If one of those women had been a police officer, we would have just killed him. I mean, it should have happened anyways. This is the informational thing that I wanted to talk about because I was actually talking to someone at work today and she did not know the difference between concurrent 
and consecutive in sentencing. Concurrent is your 10 years. They both count like at at the the same same time. time. As if you and the mouse in your pocket are serving. Exactly. So he got two counts. He got 10 and 10. When they're served concurrently, you serve whichever one is longest, basically. So you're serving everything at the same time. So really, he only got 10 years. Then he got this 300 years for the burglary that he got consecutively. And consecutively means all of those sentencing runs back to back before you ever have the chance at parole. Right. Which ones of these? Okay, so rape's a felony. Yes. Isn't kidnapping a felony? I'm not 100% sure what these were in 1977 or before the 70s. So he did the rapes and then he did the burglaries? Or was this all around the same time? He was out on parole and did the burglaries. That's another reason that he got more is because, first of all, he's on probation. Second of all, he is repeat felon. Anything you do after that just escalates you even further into you should not be in society. As if raping and leaving someone for dead is not enough. So consecutive means that you're going to serve all of your stuff back to back. And concurrent means you're serving the longest one, basically, because you're serving all of them together and you're going to serve the longest one. So if you get five years and you get two years and you get them concurrently, you're really only serving five years. And in Oklahoma, I don't know if any of you know this, but you only have to serve now at least 85% of that before you are eligible for parole. He gets all of this time. He goes back in. He is serving his time. He apparently develops these photos and well, at one point these photos had been in the sheriff's desk that I guess they had been passed around somehow. It wasn't really ever clear about how this happened. Wait, he, this guy, this Gene guy is who developed the pictures. Yes, Gene Leroy Hart. Okay, so if I'm taking, let's see, we know I do photography. So I'm taking pictures and then I'm going to go in with this inmate who has known, has been known to rape women and get, uh, and you're going to have him develop pictures of women. It's free. Idiot. Yeah. Poke the bear. Good job. So they don't know if he had made copies for himself. Right. Or if he had kept these copies or whatever, but somehow he knew that they were at least at one point in his possession. He knew that he had been the one that developed them. And also shortly after that, he escaped from prison. Oh, ta-da. I think that the claim that the defense eventually made was that they didn't actually find these pictures in the cave at all, but that they had been given from the man who took them to the sheriff and then they were in the sheriff's desks for a long time and then the sheriff planted them. Can we get a chain of custody on these things or what? Apparently that was not a freaking thing back then. Oh. Yeah. Frustrating, I know. Basically, because he named him as the developer of these pictures, they thought, well, he has yet to be found. He had escaped from prison and had been escaped from prison by the time that the Girl Scout murders happened for four years. Probably living in this cave. Probably. Like the fucking demented creep that he is. So he was still at large. They knew that that he had actually grown up only a mile away from the camp. 
that his mother still lived in the area, they decided to start staking out his mother's house. Which, fun fact, when I was talking about this, I'll just say at work, the person that I was talking with said that at the time she would have been like 11 years old or something. Her parents actually had a family friend that was with the FBI that worked on this case. And he is actually the one that staked out the mother's house. Awesome. Like, it was like a long-term thing. So they had people staked out at his house, but obviously he wasn't there. I I don't remember how long they had staked out, but I know that it was a good long time. And it, it was already 10 days after the crime had happened when they even implicated Hart for any of this, when they even made any connections. So it, it was a while. Our OSBI agent decided to go back undercover and go talk to the Cherokee people again within the area. They were still actively like doing searches and stuff with their, their search dogs. He went to the Cherokee people and he's trying to get more information. The people that he talked to said, we're not giving you inf- any information, but I can tell you that he is number one, living with his medicine man on his property. Boom. And number two, that medicine man has cursed you. He cursed the investigation. And they said, those search dogs are going to die. He cursed them. They're not going to be able to track who they're looking for. Here's the weird part. Oh, here's the weird part. Here's another weird part. (laughs) (laughs) It's been so normal so far. (laughs) Right? (laughs) God. Several days after he heard this... One of the search dogs died. No, puppy! Of apparent heat exhaustion. Well, that's believable at Oklahoma. Then, a couple days later, a second search dog was hit by a car and died. That's a freak accident. Those people treat their dogs better than they treat humans. As they should. Dogs are the best people. Oh, that's so terrible. This gets my superstition jellies going. I don't know. There's just too many things about this case that is like, is it even possible for it to be a coincidence? It starts to make me believe even more because you already know that I really love Native American culture and I love spiritualism and all that stuff and their rituals. And it makes me believe it even more. I know. I didn't even mention when we were talking about all of this weird stuff happening outside of the camps. Two months prior to opening day for Camp Scott, that summer the counselors were there and they're they're there during the summer trying to get everything ready for the campers that are coming out for the summer. They're all out doing stuff, getting ready. And there is like this main cabin that they were all meeting in. And one of them had brought donuts early that morning, had put it on a little table and they were out getting ready and whatnot. When they came back, their cabin had been ransacked. All of the donuts in the box were gone. Well, he's petty. Inside the donut box was a note. It was apparently uh, like a full page note within the note said, we are on a mission to kill three little girls. What? Yeah, this was two months before the crime. Okay, and we didn't call off camp because why? Because they thought that it was a practical joke because outside of the cabin, 
there was also like, I can't remember what, what they said, a mannequin or something that had been strung up and hung on a tree outside of the cabin. And so they thought that it was just some sort of practical joke and they never mentioned it to anyone. And they also threw away the note. I'm sorry, that's not a practical joke. You don't joke about killing three little girls. A practical joke is when you're taking a shower and you're almost done and someone throws a cup of flour over the top on you. That's a fucking practical joke. Yeah. Why would you not take that seriously? Oh boy, I bet they kicked themselves over that one. Yeah. Well, and here, here's another thing about that is that that little girl who had been put into that tent that night and then taken out and moved in with her own troop. She had said that when the little girl from the tent next door was making the, she said, a bear claw outside of the tent into the light, making it kind of look scary from the inside. And she kind of got in trouble for that and they had to take her back to her tent. So the counselor took all of them with her to, to take this other girl back to her tent. When they came back to the tent, there was a full box of donuts sitting in front of tent number eight. What the hell? I believe that the girls got in trouble because they're like smuggling sweets or something. And they were like, these are not our donuts. We don't know where they came from. Where would they have even got them from? Like, honestly, what? No idea. Get it together, 70s. Right? Jean Leroy Hart, a name that would come to dominate headlines in this case. His name actually wasn't made public until June 23rd. Now, the little girl's murder was June 13th, I believe. I think so, too. That was 10 days after the crimes. So they implicated him 10 days after the crimes. Investigators scoured the woods to find more clues to follow up for leads. They had heard from some of the Cherokee people that he was staying with his medicine man and his medicine man lived near the camp somewhere. So they were basically scouring this 410 acres just literally find a needle in a haystack. So Hart was already familiar with the authorities because he was a convicted rapist and burglar. And apparently he was already a two-time prison escapee. And the last time that he escaped, he was gone for four years, never to be found. His sentence was already up to like 305 years total. They held a news conference, basically told everybody, this is who we're looking for at this time, but we have no further information. As for evidence during that news conference, they declined to say anything other than that items had been found in a cave close to the camp that had been connected to Hart, and he was believed to be like hiding somewhere nearby. Well, apparently, because Hart had grown up in this area, he had grown up like a mile away from this camp he knew these freaking woods right any friends and family would testify like he is an expert woodsman but it's gonna be kind of hard to find him anyway i mean he he's been hiding for four freaking years in the woods you know what i mean they put out a description actually and while i do this i'm gonna send you a picture of another thing that they found in the cave this was written on a cave wall and this is like an actual evidence photo it's like etched in the stone. It says the killer was here. Bye bye fools. And then it has the date carved in the top of it is 61777. It's weird. Who dates like that? So it's got year, month, 
date. Like, I don't even think British people do it that way. Do they do it that way? I was wondering that as well. And I'm kind of wondering if that's something that's taught to, like, if that's a prisoner thing. Well, wasn't he like 33 the first time he got walked up? I mean, surely to shit, you'd know how to write the date properly by then. He was 33 when they implicated him, when they started looking for him in this case. Oh, so he was way fucking younger whenever he raped them and burled. Yeah, he was younger. I mean, that means he was like 21, 22, already doing this. Yeah, he was 22. And he was working for the Tulsa Steel Company. This is another crap part about it is that these poor two women that he kidnapped and raped, they were both pregnant at the time. Where'd he get them from? Does it say anything about that? Like where? It says that he kidnapped them from a Tulsa nightclub, but it doesn't say which one. He had gotten two concurrent 10-year terms for that, but he was paroled out after only 28 months. So in 77, it must not... this, This must be the reason why Oklahoma updated their laws to where you have to serve at least 85% of your sentence before you can even be considered for parole because that's nonsense. 28 months, Hmm. you almost killed two women and, and technically you almost killed two babies and you're out in 28 months. (sighs) See, this is what makes me wonder about. So the medicine man calling him a shapeshifter you know how you and I are, like how our spiritualism works. And like whenever we do like tarot cards, you you don't necessarily take things as a literal meaning. Picture there's that, that headstone in Kanawha at Sacred Heart that says killed by human wolves. Yes. And that's what they called, I think, I want to say it's specifically abortion doctors, but it may just be doctors. No, it was abortion doctors. Okay, so, like, as far as that's concerned, they may not mean you literally are a shapeshifter, like you turn into a bird or an owl or whatever, but it's the fact that you you can hide who you are, you can hide where you are, and things about you change. You know what I mean? It's like one minute he's raping you and leaving you for dead, and it's an adult woman. The next minute he's burglarizing. The next minute he's killing young little Girl Scouts. Just saying so that people listening aren't going, Jesus, you guys, he didn't turn into an owl. (laughs) We know know that. Or do we? Or do we? Anyways, I'm just saying. So prior Oklahoma has a, their newspaper is called the Jeffersonian. So a journalist from the prior Jeffersonian, he was up covering this for prior and he has a little quote here. He says, um, his name was Mike Wheat, that this man had created an aura of mystery around him. He had become this folklorish kind of character, a local legend, said Wheat. He seemed to materialize at random. Locals were regularly saying they saw Hart here or there at the county fair or somewhere. Wheat said, people from local tribes started describing Hart as a shapeshifter and gave him the nickname The Sandman. And a lot of people that were part of the investigation claimed to have seen a black dog roam in the area, sometimes following searchers and police and then vanishing without a trace. So natives started to say that the dog was actually Hart, as the dog had been seen by some of the children as well before the attack took place. What if the dog's not literally him? What if it's almost like a familiar? Yeah. Like... 
the the medicine man is using some sort of animal to spy for them or to track things for them. Yeah. So many theories. From what I understand, I think that what this OSBI agent believed was if he had a medicine man that was doing certain things, he needed a medicine man to counteract those things. Right, right. Yeah. Weeks passed and everybody who was optimistic seemed to be way less optimistic about finding this guy. There was like reported sightings and leads and all this stuff coming in, but then it like slowed down to a trickle and eventually the search for Hart was scaled back significantly and the media interest even waned because they were just like, well, I guess we're just not going to find this guy. On April 6th, which is 10 months, by the way, after the murders, the manhunt had come to a close because they found him in a small shack in the Cookson Hills of eastern Cherokee County. Acting on a tip, OSBI agents converged on the site, which was home to a man named Sam Pigeon, who was apparently this medicine man. So they arrested him, and they took him to prison. Other things that they had found in the cave that they used as evidence in his trial... They found tape, plastic materials used to cover the flashlight lens for dimming, the two photos, red lace panties, and a pair of the prescription glasses that were taken from the camp. Oh my god. Do you think the writing on the wall could have been a prank? I mean, bye-bye fools. What's the date on it? 17? Yeah. So four days is what that is implicating it was written. Four days after the murder. But they didn't find the cave and implicate Hart for 10 days. So maybe. There's just a lot of maybes in this case. I'm sorry. If you were the killer, would you put the killer was here? (laughs) (laughs) No, probably not. You know what I mean? You're somewhat sharp to get away with all this shit to escape from prison from the hands of the the justice system. Right for four years you know the killer was here bye bye fools yeah i don't know if you'll take a look at that picture i just sent you you will notice that on Hart's face is a pair of glasses little ones those glasses were determined to be female prescription glasses that were not his where did those glasses come from that's odd right well and and here's the thing too i don't know if i mentioned this in his previous crimes when he had kidnapped and raped these girls. Both of them actually wore prescription glasses. There is an interview of one of the victims on tape where she states when he was done raping her, he would take her glasses off and put them on his own face and wear them until he would go get the other girl. And then he would take hers off and put them on his face and wear hers for a little while. And I believe one of them at, at one point asked him what he was doing, and he said he just wanted to see if they would work. I was going to say, like, he's, he's just trying to figure out what his prescription is so he doesn't have to pay, like, copay at the doctor's when he comes. <laughs> right. And what's this? I really like this one for my right eye. Negative 20? That sounds good. I'll remember that. I, I just think that's so strange. Yes. This person is not normal. This person is not okay. Okay, so they swept the home. They... They arrested him and they swept the home. They didn't find anything. Then later, 
they were like, hey, we didn't find anything. We should go back and look again because we just like, we've got this feeling that we missed something in the house. Oh, this is how evidence gets planted, but okay. Yeah, well, and this is exactly what his defense in trial said that happened. Because on the second sweep, they found like a hand mirror that had belonged to one of the little girls, not one of the victims, but a little girl in the camp itself that had gone missing that night. But of course, the defense and people were talking and they had all said that it was planted. Yeah, that just sounds weird to me. I'm sorry. If you're catching a man that you've been looking for for four years, you're hardly going to leave anything unturned or unnoticed. or Yeah. When his trial began, of course, he pled not guilty. Following a marathon preliminary hearing in June to July of 1978, it took like a month and was the longest preliminary hearing in state history. Support for the defendant seemed only to increase. Remember all of those native people who didn't want to speak to agents about this. They all said that he was framed, that all of this evidence was planted that they only did this because they didn't like Native Americans and he like some weird how created this like cult following around him during his trial and he had this like huge support system where people would literally they would have like hog fries and dinners to raise money for his defense there were people literally supporters wearing t-shirts like outside of the trial with slogans on it like stop the Mays County Railroad because they thought that he was being literally railroaded and set up. Oh you sweethearts. You don't okay so you don't get in trouble for those the two rapes and then burgling and then escape from prison twice and hide out for four years because you're fucking innocent. Like thank you. Let's not let's not go that far, you know? Thank you. Yeah. It doesn't matter at this point as a spectator whether he is innocent or guilty because he was already found guilty. Yes, these little girls do absolutely need justice. He need, you know, who if he did this, he needs to be sentenced as such. However, the minute that this trial is over, he is already in custody. He is going to go back and serve the rest of his 305 years. So, I don't understand how these people are like rallying behind this guy when he's already been convicted of these horrible heinous crimes. Yeah. And then playing, like, playing the race card in there. First of all, one of the OSBI agents was Native American. And then, so you killed two white girls and a black one. Yeah. So, I mean, and and not only that, but get this. So the Cherokee Nation Tribal Council itself stepped in. They donated $12,500 for Hart's defense. And the council even made a statement that said they weren't taking a position on quote-unquote Hart's guilt or innocence. They just wanted to help ensure he receives a fair trial. That's crazy to me. He is already a convicted felon, and you're giving him money for his... This is just crazy. On March 5th, which was 21 months since the murders, the trial finally began. Huh. And a lot of people were saying it was already a carnival, a circus, a a shit show, basically, atmosphere. 
because there were news reporters, there were just civilians, there were major media and like all kinds of people. And they actually held his trial in prior. You want to know what sucks, though, is that this is a completely different case. He has already served his time for the first two things. So you can't bring back those women. You can't bring up how he tied them up exactly the same fucking way. Nothing. Like, you have to act like that didn't happen. How shitty is that? Super shitty. Because there were so many similarities, even with the glasses alone. Mm-hmm. It was just, like, set to fail. There was literally lines when when they would open the doors in the morning for court. There was lines of spectators, like, lining up at the courthouse to come in and freaking watch this trial. Because apparently nobody had anything better to do in 1977. <laughs> the jury selection itself took 10 days, with more than 110 prospective jurors questioned. Then the 12 people who were ultimately chosen six men and six women represented occupations such as plant manager gas firm foreman school teacher housewife most are from prior or adair no jurors were from locust grove but i have heard rumors just people talking like around this area that some of the jury members and i do not know if this is true so do not quote me on this i have no earthly idea this is just a rumor but i heard that some of the jurors were family members of his what the but anywho during the entire trial he did not say anything he was like super silent a lot of people were describing him as picturesque of calm stoic stoic when they asked him if he wanted to get on the stand and defend himself he did not do it because he didn't want to speak how weird is that i don't know you don't even want to get on the stand and defend yourself that's so strange so the prosecution admitted that it had no smoking gun like as in evidence no damning evidence what they found they had the fingerprint on the flashlight they tried to match it. It was not a match to heart. They had also found a very long black hair. And remember how all of the hair analysis went before 1997. Like, I mean, in Ada alone, we had people matching hairs and then later being exonerated because they were actually dog hairs that they were matched with. So let's not get crazy about hair matches. But anyway, they said that they had matched the hair found at the crime scene to heart. And here's another thing. So they had found semen and sperm on these poor girls' bodies, but Hart had claimed to it had a vasectomy years and years prior. Well, the semen would make sense, but the sperm... because He claimed that because he had had a vasectomy, there would be absolutely no way that there could be sperm in his semen. So the semen and sperm that they found at the crime scene could not have been his. Well, I'm not entirely sure that one man could wrangle up three little girls alone and not have anyone else notice. That's exactly what I'm thinking this entire time. If I was alone with three little girls in any way, shape, or form, I would want another adult with me just for my sanity. It's like herding cats. I'm not entirely sure whoever this person was acted alone just because there was one bloody footprint. 
I'm so glad that you're coming to the same conclusions I came to on my own. Yeah. Speaking of that, the bloody footprint, I'm now excited to tell you, was not a match to Hart because Hart's foot size was 11 and a half and the one found at the crime scene was a nine and a half. Teeny tiny. Maybe it's his medicine man. Quite possible. I'm coming to the same conclusion I came to last night was that if it was Hart, he did not do this alone. So did anyone ever implicate the medicine man that he was living with? No. That allegedly was botching this investigation that, I mean, an accomplice, nothing. They never implicated the medicine man. However, when they went to court... The prosecution was trying to present all this so-called evidence that they had. The defense said, okay, well, none of this matches up. Like, the the fingerprint wasn't a match. The shoe print wasn't a match. The hair is, I mean, come on. He had a vasectomy, like, all of these things. And he said, besides, there's another man that you should be looking at. And his name is Bill Stevens. Why aren't you looking at him? I never saw anywhere in here... In anything that I had looked up yesterday, that Bill Stevens or William Stevens was named as a suspect prior to them finding Hart. If they didn't get that name out of the media, where did they come up with this name at? Is what I want to know. Who is it? What's a Bill Stevens? That's what they said. Who is Bill Stevens? We don't know. Well, Bill Stevens had been convicted prior of raping as well and burglary as well so these two men had a lot in common already and so they started questioning people there was a woman who came forward as a witness that i guess they were like passing around pictures of this bill stevens and actually i have a picture it is a picture from when he was arrested So this is the picture that they were kind of passing around to say, have you seen this man or whatever? And when they questioned this woman and her son who lived not far from Camp Scott, she had actually said that Bill Stevens had actually been by her house the day that the little girls were found and that he had scratches all over him and he had red stains kind of like blood on his shoes. They also showed her pictures of the crime scene and she ended up identifying that red flashlight as a flashlight that she herself gave to Bill Stevens. Later, when they were showing around these pictures, one of the little girls in another tent in the camp, remember when I said that in tent six... A man lifted up the tent and shined his flashlight in. Yeah. Well, apparently one little girl caught a look at his face and identified Bill Stevens as that man who did that. Now, I understand that we're going off the word of an 8, 9, 10-year-old, and this was a lineup-type photo situation. And she picked that one specifically out of all the ones that they showed her? Yeah. Do you think that maybe the little girls got crept out and left lights on or something? Because what I'm wondering is, like, have you ever been pulled over at night? They come at you with their freaking spotlight in the side mirror and then a flashlight in your face. And it's like, yeah, I can't see you from Adam. I honestly don't even know if you're a freaking cop. Like, I can't see. (laughs) You know, like, how could you? Yeah. 
I don't know. I do not know. Okay. And then you have this witness saying that she gave that flashlight to Bill Stevens and she could identify it because apparently there were scratches on it, like indentation scratches, because it was an older flashlight. It was her older used flashlight. And she told them exactly where it was taped, exactly where these older scratches were. Like, she identified this flashlight and then said, I gave it to a man named Bill Stevens. Now we're wondering, and I could never verify this, but... I have this theory that maybe at some point Stevens and Hart could have possibly been in prison together. And he gave that name up? Either he gave that name up or they were in it together. Because at the time, Bill Stevens was apparently on the run from the law as well. He like skipped parole or something. How big are his feet? They could have been hiding out this ca- this cave together or something. Or they could have done time together and he learned all about him and he just like randomly gave up that name. And then all of a sudden this witness gets fed information and they spin it to say she came forward. Either way. But see, that is the problem with this entire case. There's so much possible corruption, but there's so many things left Basically, what happened was they went to Bill Stevens. They were like, hey, Bill, were you here that night? He was like, no. They were like, take a lie detector test. He took it and he failed. But then they never did anything after that. I want to say it wasn't long after Hart's trial was over that Bill was stabbed to death in prison. So even if he did it, like he took that to his grave, you know. Gosh, dang it. Yeah. If he said something, they need to talk to the people who killed him and find out why. Because if, if say they're watching this trial on television, I know that inmates aren't our finest citizens, but from what I understand, they do not take kindly to rapists or to pedophilia. Right. If they caught wind of his name getting brought up, they either knew and should have had it protected and chose not to or someone just got pissed off at him i don't know well and if we want to talk about the dna that they supposedly took yes apparently they had a dna sample from a pillowcase what yeah the fbi did tests on dna samples that was described as inconclusive well this was 89 by the time that they did this. Wait, who's pillowcase? Like, I keep thinking from the tent, but they could have taken it from his cabin or whatever. From the crime scene. Oh shit, so it was from the tent. I want to say that that DNA was bodily fluid. It was uh, semen. They said three of five aspects of the DNA from the murder scene from that pillowcase matched those of bodily fluids taken from heart. I mean, because it's 89. Their DNA testing wasn't, like, exact as it is today. So they said only one in 7,700 American Indians would match the samples. And Hart was one of those matches. But since only three of the five samples matched, the results were deemed inconclusive. When and why and how did he get a vasectomy? I have no idea. That was never discussed in anything I found on why. Do we even know that's a fact, or was he just like, I had a vasectomy. Can't be mine. Yes, we do, and I will tell you later. Okay. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want people like that procreating, but I'm just saying normally they're like, they're kind of adamant about not allowing that sort of thing unless you're married or you've maxed out your child, like your children. You're like, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, they're not just like, oh, okay, you want one? Snip, snip. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't live in that decade, so I don't know. Needless to say, not much was coming out of this trial. Well, as in evidence, they the prosecutors had nothing. I mean, everything was basically circumstantial or they were being... People were saying that they were framing him or that it was fake evidence, that it was, it was planted there. And eventually, when they got to the jury deliberations... I believe I read somewhere that the deliberation itself only took five minutes, but they actually sat in there for hours so that they would make people feel like they were doing their due diligence or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the last thing we want is a freaking retrial on this psycho. The night before the jury deliberations, the OSBI Native American agent thought, we're not going to get him. So he invited his medicine man to come to the courthouse and they did a ritual that night. Basically, the way that he described it was basically the medicine man himself was going to act as a messenger to the spirits. The agents would ask the messenger for something specific. The medicine man would put that out into the world for the spirits and get an answer. So what they did was and this is straight from the OSBI agent's mouth from this documentary. They just have a query. They're not trying to make something happen. Well, at this point, no, they're trying to make something happen. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was like midnight the night before the jury was supposed to deliberate. And he did his small campfires at each corner of the courthouse and they burned their sacred trees and they smoked their sacred cigarettes and they asked the spirits to deliver unto them the ultimate truth they wanted to know because the sheriff in this had been implicated the hardest because he was the one that had apparently had these pictures in his possession for a long time and everybody was saying that he planted them or somehow planted them in this cave And that sheriff actually had a heart attack and he didn't pass away, but he had like a heart attack and he was like in the hospital and stuff. And the uh, Native Americans were saying that was because of his guilt. Well, so when they did this, this ritual this night, they said, we want to know the ultimate truth is heart guilty of this crime or is the sheriff guilty of planting evidence and framing heart and so he did his ritual and then he came back to them and he said it may take a minute for the spirits to answer you but you will have your answer and it will be in the form of the ultimate truth and there was like several non-native agents i guess at this ritual and they were like please explain to me what this ultimate truth is please (laughs) I need to know what this means. (laughs) And it was explained to them that the- Explain enlightenment to me. (laughs) Sit down. (laughs) We we need a while. Right? And so it was explained to them that 
the ultimate truth was basically going to present itself in death. That whoever the guilty party was, was going to die. That either the sheriff, his heart would continue to fail and he would die because he's guilty, or Hart, who was now 35 at the time, would die somehow. And this would reveal the ultimate truth in who who was guilty of this. They didn't think that they were going to get a guilty verdict. And so they wanted to know on their own, spiritually, the answers to this. The next day, the jury deliberates. They come out and they find him not guilty. And then he is immediately acquitted. However, he still has 305 years to serve. Well, while we've got you here. Uh... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so they load his ass up and they take him back to prison to serve the rest of his of that sentencing. Two months later, Hart is out in the recreational area and he suffers a massive heart attack and dies. He was 35 years old. Oh, no, he wasn't the epitome of health, but I mean, we both saw him and he was this like athletic person. He was this expert woodsman. He lived in the freaking woods for four years. And you're telling me that he had a massive heart attack out of nowhere at 35 and he was in pretty good shape. He put himself through a whole lot of stress in 35 short years. They did an autopsy. It was confirmed that he had a massive heart attack. While they were in there, they were like, hey, could you go ahead and check that vasectomy thing? They checked to see if he had actually had a vasectomy. They found that, yes, he had a vasectomy. However, that vasectomy was not successful. Didn't take. Boom. Twelve years later, they ran the samples again on the sperm that was found and they found that it was a 99.88% match to heart. Oh, he did it. He so did it. Not that there's ever been a doubt that he did it, but... And then there has still never been a match to the footprint. There has still never been a match to the fingerprint. And I don't know why they didn't, but when they had Bill Stevens and they were like, giving him these polygraph tests that never once was like, hey, maybe we should check his shoe size or maybe we should test his fingerprints against the one that we found at the crime scene. But they never did. If Hart had an accomplice, we will never know. Things that happened after the trial and the acquittal Heart's death. 22 OSBI agents resigned. What? Why? Nobody knows. That's like a rapture. Yeah. You know what, though? I mean, who knows? Some of them might have just been staying on to complete that. 22 is a high number, though. That's a pretty big number. Or maybe it just takes a toll on you. I can imagine seeing a whole lot of things, but having anything to do with that rape on children is awful murder is awful murdering children is awful then you do all those things and those parents have to go that long without answers and then 
they still can't pin it on him and then he dies so they never get to hear anything you know oh yeah i mean i still don't know the amount of closure that you could get i would be somewhat satisfied but i also would think he's even more of a chicken shit son of a bitch for taking that to his death just the lowest of the low if you freaking did it you are already serving 305 years. You are not getting out of prison in your lifetime. You're you're not going to. So, but I mean, what does it matter if you confess to doing something that you did? I guarantee you his life on the inside would have been just as short, if not shorter, if he'd admitted to it. Yeah. And he only lived two months after his acquittal. He was in prison for two months before he died of his massive heart attack. See, and that's such a, once again, way too peaceful of a way to go. A lot of the Native American community, like the OSBI agent, said, well, we got our answer. And this was 12 years before the DNA came back as a match. But they're saying, like, this is what we asked for when we did that ritual. We got our ultimate truth when Hart died and the sheriff lived. Yeah, I'm sorry. I believe that. Another thing is that two of the little girl's parents sued the camp and the camp owner for negligence. They sued for $5 million, I believe, because they said that, number one, there was no security of any kind put into place. There was no fencing. There were no security lights. They apparently had one security guard on the on campsite but she said that they should have had one in each camp that the girls should not have been staying in tents by themselves that they should have had they should have been in tents with counselors okay that part i agree with yeah well and i do too like who leaves all of these untended children oh my gosh and they're so young they could anything could happen yeah they had also said in their lawsuit that they should have been notified the two months prior when they got the death threat in the camp counselor cabin. Yep. And that they didn't disclose that information. They probably would not have sent their children to camp that year. I don't know if this is sad or what, because I, I get both sides of it, I guess. But they ultimately lost their lawsuit. And it's because... The camp director denied knowing anything about that incident at all. She said that nothing had ever been brought to her attention, that no one had ever told her that that happened, and that if she had known, she would have probably shut the camp down and had some sort of investigation done. But then they had representatives come in from the Girl Scouts. Oh, it's not called the Girl Scouts of America. But they sent in a representative, and the representative basically said, well, we can't have these things, because this is what makes Girl Scouts Girl Scouts. Yeah. We can't have all of this lighting, because the point of it is for them to be camping, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of get that as well. Yeah, we didn't, I mean, we didn't have lights, we didn't have security, and they they handle things the best way they can. And if the point is... For them to be learning how to start their own campfires and stuff like that. I mean, it's kind of defeating the purpose if you have a bunch of 
lights or whatever. You make s'mores and you tell scary stories. Yeah. And there's even lights out. It's like nine o'clock. You have to have your lights out. Yeah. But we'd turn on our freaking flashlights and tell our stupid stories and we'd all gang up together. Nobody showed up with just a troop leader. There would be a couple of sponsors, a, a couple of sponsor parents, one or two that would come because at the end of the night, once lights out happened, our troop leaders had meetings. If the adult chaperones weren't there, we would have been in the cabins by ourselves, like 12 of us, yeah. 12, 14 yeah. of us. And maybe it's partly because of what happened. I was at camp, you know, 20 years later, but we couldn't, we couldn't even go anywhere in twos. We're talking three, four or five of us. We had to go like a wolf pack. Yeah. And that was fine because like I said, we were like sisters anyways, you know, that's one big click. That's, that's right. no problem. You would actually get chewed out for being somewhere like just two people they'd act like you were doing something terribly wrong like you were getting ready to set the place on fire <laughs> well and I'm, I'm sure a lot of them knew about camp scott and what happened there and that they did need to take some sort of measures oh yeah and it's a, it's a generational thing so i'm sure some of them were girl scouts just like my mother girl scouts when that happened who became yeah leaders you know later Absolutely. So, yeah, so they ended up ultimately losing that. They didn't get anything from it. Not one cent did they get from it. I'm sorry. It's not their fault. It was just a terrible, terrible, I wouldn't say accident, but you sent your kids to this camp. But I would agree with two of the statements made. I'm going to agree that these kids should have been in a tent with a counselor. Yes, absolutely. Not a 15-year-old counselor, like an adult. Yes. Because our counselors stayed in their own cabin. Counselors had a cabin, and then we all had our leaders with us. Right. They should have had an adult with them. Yeah. And then secondly, they should have told the camp director about this so-called prank because maybe she could have taken some preventative measures and they should have told the parents that it happened. So the parents could have made their own decisions about whether to let their kids go that year or not. I don't know what land that is that we lived in through those periods of time. <laughs> but, you know, now it's to the point where if someone threatens to come shoot up a school or bomb or whatever, like the whole thing is shut down. Yeah. Because what if you don't? And then this sort of thing happens. Exactly. Because I think they've seen it too many times where someone didn't. Like the what if you don't and they didn't and then something horrible has happened. It's just, it's really sad because during this lawsuit, the camp owner just sold off the property. The property is now private property. It has not been open since that day. And there's 410 acres that no one has done anything with. I mean, I'm sure we could find a good use for 410 acres. Uh, just let it be nature. I don't know. Just... Well, yeah. I mean, if, even if we turned into a nature reserve. I'm fine with it. The animals, the trees, like park. I hope somebody went there and at least blessed it because when human blood is shed yeah. like that on the, that's a cursed spot. That's a, that's a dark place. And that, that is essentially what the OSBI agent was doing when he called his medicine man the first time, because it was only what days after the murders happened when he called his medicine man and they blessed the area. Yeah. However, 
something like that should have maybe been blessed more than once by multiple different... I don't know. Yeah, call in the priests, call in the shaman. Bring everybody. Wake Marie Laveau up from the dead, get her out of that, what's that thing, mausoleum? Let's call in. I'm just saying. Everybody, you kill three little girls and there is some bad, bad juju happening. Not okay. And there has been people that have snuck onto the property... You know, those ghost hunter types over the years, and there have been claims and lore and rumors and whatever that several people have seen the ghost of little girls along the cookie trail. Several people have heard children laughing in the forest, children screaming in the forest. But these are all people who go there with that intent. It's not like they're just hanging out camping and they don't know anything about it, you know? Plus, they're f- I'm sorry, they're freaking sick for that anyway. I wouldn't go there. I'm not going there. And then there's still people that claim to see the black dog. So there's so much strangeness and weirdness, but also brutality surrounding this case. Honestly, you listen to it. You have been listening to me now. I will just say I've been telling you this story for two hours, two over two hours. Don't you just still have so many questions, but also somehow you're like drained from it? Because it's soulless. It's really, really hard to wrap. You and I are empaths, and it's really hard to wrap your mind around not only lacking humanity, but to the point where you will purposely take a life, take three lives, take innocent lives of little girls who are just trying to learn basic life skills and have fun with their friends in the summertime. Can you imagine being one of the other Girl Scouts that was there? No. Not just the one taken out of the tent, just... Or one of the adults. I absolutely can't. The gravity of that situation. Or the 15-year-old. Like, not only was it her quote-unquote responsibility, how responsible does anyone expect you to be at 15, honestly, but these kids are under your care and under your watch, and then you're walking and you see that the next day? The plus side is, is that... Even though the counselor who found them was only 15 at the time, I think that she did do a really good job of, well, number one, she found them pretty dang early. She was the first one up in her camp that morning, but she did a really good job of keeping the children away from it because not one time in any article or video or anything anywhere have I seen anyone say I was a kid and I saw the bodies Mm -hmm. and I can't imagine being 15 years old and walking up on that that's just oh my goodness right so on that same you're childless I'm childless so it's hard for me to wrap my mind around how parents keep their sanity for the girls to be out of school and be all excitable and be home and then they're gone to camp for two weeks and you just assume like they're growing into capable women they're learning life skills they're trying to learn camaraderie and sisterhood and all that and you're like this is great developmental skills are wonderful you know they don't have to hit any books to learn these life skills you're basically almost going to common sense camp so you get a break as a parent And that's, after two weeks, yeah, you're going to start to miss him. You kind of don't know what to do with yourself. You're a little bit lost because for the last eight years, you've wrapped your identity around this child and what they need and what they want and how to keep them from screaming while still giving them structure. One of these women has a husband that's a police officer. Yeah. Who, by the way, once Hart was 
acquitted, he quit his job and he stayed home. They had a younger daughter than that. And he just decided he wanted to just stay home with her, like literally all the time. So that's what he did. Well, exactly. That's the impact like on a parent. That's terrible because you're like, I have made a terrible mistake. I should have been there. It's my job to protect. And then that's his job. What he has taken on his calling to protect everybody and his own daughter out of like 130 little girls, three get killed and one is his child. Mind blowing. Yeah. I don't blame him. I'd quit too. I'd be like, you know what? Then you start to take your job home with you. You know, you see something like that out in the field, something like that happens and it's just like, that's too much. Yeah. A trigger. Yeah. We're not meant to go through this. This wasn't supposed to happen. I got raised thinking that God doesn't mess with free will. I really think he should sometimes. Oh, yeah. I I agree. Yeah, 100%. Please intervene. We don't know what we're doing. (laughs) We make bad decisions. Then there's these soulless people. These people, like we've been talking about this man who has... He didn't see it. It wasn't his, but it was his little girl. He can't protect his own little girl. And then in a previous case, we've had... You know, the Caitlin Wooten case, we had the uncle that is a police officer that couldn't protect his own niece. We all cope with it in different ways. And if that's if that's truly our calling, then we have been equipped or we have learned ourselves well enough to know how to cope with it. And it's never easy. But at the end of the day, you have to draw a line between science and the heavens and realize that all you're doing day after day is being God's hands. That's the hardest thing to learn whenever you're trying to save everybody is that you can't save everybody. Well, and then, you know, there are those of us who take it way too hard. 22 OSVI agents that resigned after this case. I mean, that's 22 of you that could be still out helping people. I don't know. There's the sensitive side, but then there's also a fierce, you start to criminalize everyone. Because that lack of humanity should not exist in us. And you don't understand why. Exactly. And you don't understand why you couldn't stop it. You don't know why it happened. And you can't fix it. And you can't take it back. And so it starts to make you, it makes you someone that you're not. Because it's just vile and it's evil. And it's not welcome. That's that's it right there. Like you have this case and you just saw three little girls. I get it. I get it why like they were like, nope, that's my last one. That was the last one ever. I'm not going to ever look at that again. Yeah, because then you just start freaking hating people. We didn't come prepared for the end of this one, did we? (laughs) Well, I didn't come prepared because I purposely didn't look like whenever you told me that article and what you wanted to talk about, I saw the date of when it happened and what the dude's name was. And I was like, nope, I want to hear about this from her and not have anything to throw in. Because re- reactions reactions are important. I think one thing, there is a theme here. If, don't protect somebody. If they've done something horrible and vile. Like, if they're innocent, they're innocent. Yeah. Okay, cool. But if they're not, like, that could have been your kid. That could have been your little sister. That could have been your big sister. You know, don't just protect somebody. Absolutely. This whole staying out of it thing just drives me wild. Because look at all the damage he did to all these lives because he escaped and because we gave him concurrent sentences. I freaking hate concurrent sentences. Pin him to a wall, man. And they're not all like that. Not everyone's like that. 
Some people deserve a second shot or a change or whatever, but it kind of depends on what they did. And he was so young when he started off doing things that were terrible. He's just bad. Now they can't even technically close the case. The case is still technically unsolved because he had already gone to trial and he had been acquitted. Therefore, you can't say someone was guilty of something Mm -hmm. if they've already been to trial for it. So it's still technically unsolved. Have the Girl Scout murders finally been solved? Well, in 2016, Mays County Sheriff Mike Reed raised $30,000 in donations to reopen the case and carry out new DNA testing. There had been hundreds of items of evidence in the case that had never been tested for DNA. In May 2022, the Hayes authorities announced more DNA tests had been carried out in 2019 that strongly pointed to Hart's involvement in the killings. But no full DNA profile has ever been developed in the case. The tests did eliminate several, if not dozens, of other suspects, but they could not fully eliminate Hart. So what does this mean? Well, it means that they could absolutely eliminate those other suspects, but for Hart, he actually had a partial profile hit, which means that he could have been or he could not have been. A full profile would be needed, and it's not that they didn't have a full profile from Hart, because they did. They needed a full profile from the DNA that they were comparing it to, which they can't get because there wasn't enough to make a full profile. So it looks like it was him. He's the only one that matched the partial, but we still can't say definitively that it was or was not Hart. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?